We talked about this two weeks ago, but the book of Matthew, it's important to understand the genre. Okay, there are different genres, there are different styles of books of the Bible. And to uh, fully grasp the content of any given book of the Bible, it's, it's, it's important to understand the style in which it was written. And Matthew was written as a story, which is in contrast to, say, an epistle, which was a, a letter of actual teaching and instruction. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are the Gospels, and it tells the story of Jesus from his birth uh, to his death and resurrection um, and then his ascension. Now, each of the telling of the gospel stories by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus and his ministry and the work that he did on the cross for our salvation as the primary emphasis. Uh, But each of the gospels have kind of secondary emphases, uh, smaller focus Foci, focuses, uh, different flavors, if you will. And the example uh, that I used two weeks ago was I told the story about how Lauren and I, we got the opportunity to go to Costa Rica several years ago, and we went to dinner at this mountainside restaurant. And the the restaurant was actually built in a a cargo plane on the side of a mountain with with a beautiful view. And so if Lauren were to tell the story... And if I were to tell the story, you would get that, that we were in Costa Rica on the side of a mountain having dinner in a, in a cargo, an old cargo plane that had been converted into a restaurant. How, but however, if, when she told the story, she, being a foodie and is a much more sophisticated palate than I do, like I'm okay with Chick-fil-A all the time, you know? <laughs> Whereas when I asked her, like, where do you want me to take you for dinner? She said, always someplace new. You know, so she wants to try something new, something fun, something creative, and she wants to explore the menu, and I just want to go for number one. <laughs> you know? um, and so we're different, and so the telling of that story, it would still be in the restaurant, in the side of a mountain, overlooking beauty, but it might add the element of cuisine. Whereas I like history, and so I was like, how did this plane get here? This is a U.S. plane, we're in Costa Rica, and you, know, you flip the menu over, and it gives the history of how it came about, and I was, I was fascinated with it. And it was funny, Lauren and I were kind of recounting this story last night as we were driving. She said, I didn't, I didn't even remember some of those pieces of the history. You know, so if I were to tell the story, it would be the same story, but with a different flavor. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so Matthew is telling his story, and it's the same story as the other Gospels. Um, and his story isn't wrong because it, it, it has information that's not in the other Gospels, and it's not a contradiction. Um, but he's telling it. It's, a narrative is a specific, intentional telling of a story. So he's telling it a certain way for a certain reason. And if you spend time just reading the entire book, you begin to see the theme of, his, of the book. And the theme, as we discussed two weeks ago, is fulfillment. The fulfilled coming of the Messiah. That's the, that's the ongoing theme. And if you just did a search for the word fulfill or, or different versions of that word, fulfill or fulfillment or fulfilled, you see that there's more uses of that word than any of the other Gospels, and there's tons of Old Testament references. So there's this ongoing theme that Matthew is telling as he's telling the narrative story of Jesus that has to do with the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. So with that in mind, we kind of jump to where we're at in the birth element, the birth narrative of the beginning of Matthew. So we're going to read... Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, and there's three small stories here that we're going to read. All right, so let's, let's jump in. Matthew two thirteen. Now when they had departed, this is speaking of the wise men that we talked about two weeks ago. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son, End quote. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, a voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more, end quote. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, and those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene, end quote. Now, none of these stories, all right, it's, it's Joseph is warned, go to Egypt, Herod uh, kills the babies, and then Joseph is told in a dream, you can come back. These, these three different stories, none of them are told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Excuse me, Mark, Luke, and John um, at all. So this is the only account that we have of these three little stories of going to Egypt, Herod doing his evil deeds, and then the family coming back. However, if we do in fact believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is beneficial for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, uh, then we also believe that these particular verses hold significant value for our lives as believers. Um, and we ought to look at this text as we look at any text and say, what can we learn from this? What does this have to say about our lives? And I think if you look at the telling of the story, there are different things that you could focus on. You could focus uh, perhaps on, uh, there's a, a fairly significant emphasis on Joseph. It's, it's kind of Joseph's highlight reel because Joseph doesn't get a whole lot of playtime in the Bible. I mean, there's really one other story of Joseph, and that's how he uh, didn't divorce Mary when he found out she was pregnant. And then this is everything else that we know about Joseph. So we could say, well, this, maybe this is about Joseph and being the father figure and, and uh, being led by God and, and what that means in our life and how we should follow that example. Or maybe we could focus on there are several dreams, the angel of the Lord of uh, speaking, and we could focus on God's supernatural protection um, and what that, how that plays out in our life. Or maybe we could focus on... Um, the base level of evil of God's enemies um, and in how we're all fallen and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that we are capable of, of all sorts of sin and um, we'll do whatever we can do to protect our own personal kingdoms. Maybe we could focus on that for a little while. And there's a, a bunch of different things that we could look at in the context of these three short verses that aren't anywhere else in the gospel. Um, and I think that those type of applications could be fairly made, and I don't think you'd be twisting Scripture, but I think that we would be missing the primary point. All right, I think that's more, those are more secondary applications, and I think that there's a primary point of the text of why Matthew particularly and uniquely included these otherwise untold stories in the birth of Christ. So why? Why did Matthew tell them? I think that we can see the answer in the way that he summed up each of these three stories because he kind of wraps each one up the same way. All right, so if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, this is the wrap-up of this first story, and it says, And he, meaning Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, period. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This, this was for a reason. All right, so this happened, and I'm telling you this story, so it would fulfill this prophecy. And if you bump down to verse 17, then the killing of the babies by Herod, it says that basically this story was, was told, then was fulfilled. Okay, so this thing, these things happened, and then it was fulfilled, what was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. And then you can jump down to verse 23, and it says he came back and, and settled in Nazareth, and he says... Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So each of these stories are told specifically, primarily, to emphasize the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. We need to understand that. We need to see that. I mean, there's important things to see in, in the actual facts of the story. But Matthew, every single time, he says, I'm going I'm to relay a specific untold by any of the other Gospels piece of the story so that I can draw a specific connection to the Old Testament fulfillment. So that's, I think, where we need to spend our time 
this morning, and that's where we need to start. So with that in mind, let's look at this first prophecy that we see in the text in verse 15. At the, the quote at the end of verse 15, um, you should see a little letter denoting the Old Testament reference. You see that? A little lowercase letter? Where, where do we see this found in the Old Testament? Hosea 11.1. You see that? I remember a long time ago, my youth pastor, um, I, I remember specifically this conversation. He said, you know, it's really important to understand how to use your, your Bible because most Bibles, now that we're, I mean, we're living in a very blessed age. There's a lot of resources. Even if you don't have a study Bible, you know, you can see that little tiny letter there and look at the bottom and begin to, to do your own cross-referencing. All right, so this is a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So, I think if we're going to understand what Matthew's trying to say here, I think we need to go back to the Old Testament and, and try to read this in context. So go back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and don't feel bad if you have to look it up in the table of contents where, where Hosea is, because I know a lot of people don't camp out in, in Hosea. Hosea, uh, Hosea is, uh, you know, when it comes to the Old Testament prophets, um, prophets spoke for God. They spoke the words of God. Not like we would speak the words of God as in quoting scripture, but, but God actually spoke to them to relay as a human voice his commands for the people of God. And that typically didn't happen unless the people were not obeying, okay? So if they were obeying, then they were listening to what the priests had to say and God's spoken word that we see in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and like, you know, you obey my commands and I'll bless you, it says. But if you don't, beware. But if you're not obeying God's commands, then you start on this downward trajectory and the children of Israel, God's chosen people, the people that God had said, you are mine, you are my people, and I am your God. You follow my ways, and I will protect you. I will defeat your enemies for you. I will make the nations bow down. I will crumble their walls, and I will set up a mighty nation. Um, and the people will see that I am God by the way you live. But they, they didn't do that. And it's hard to be graphic, but the book of Hosea uses the word whore many, many times in reference to the children of Israel in the Bible, okay? Saying that you are, are whoring yourself out to other gods. It's pretty gross and graphic and the whole beginning of, Isaiah, of uh, Hosea is the telling of the, of, the, of, uh, of the prophet Hosea who marries a prostitute and that it's this analogy of the children of Israel of, of a man who loves his wife but yet the, the, the prostitute wife still keeps out going around, sleeping around, having babies, with other men, and, and then there's a switch throughout the book of Hosea um, that says, condemnation is coming. You're not doing what I've called you to do. You, and, and the children of Israel were worshiping uh, Baal, and there were several different types of, of Baal worship, and most of them, Baal was a god of fertility, and so most worship of Baal involved uh, cult prostitute worship, and that this was your act of worship was this Gross immorality. I mean, not just a not listening to God, but like a, 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 a flat-out sprint in the other direction towards destruction. That's what Hosea is. <laughs> okay? Not real fun, not real pleasant. I told you to turn to um, 11. Well, sometimes it's good just to look at the, um, at the little subheadings. You know, jump back to chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. And we can begin to see the theme and the feel of where this rough condemnation of the children of Israel is, is going. Um, what does your Bible say is the subtitle of chapter 4? I heard a rumble. The charge against Israel. The what? The Lord accuses Israel. Israel's sinfulness. All right, chapter 5. What do you see there? Punishment is coming. What about chapter 6? Israel and Judah are unrepentant. 
Now it says Israel and Judah are unrepentant because because of their sin, there was uh, kind of a civil war, kind of a divide in the nation of Israel, and they had become a northern and southern kingdom. One was called, still called Israel, the other was called Judah, and so they were both living in debauchery, but it, you know, chapter 6, the subtitle there is Israel and Judah are unrepentant. And then chapter 8, what do you see? Israel will reap the whirlwind. All right, so, so judgment is, is coming. For chapter 9, the Lord will punish Israel. And so there's very much this theme of repent and turn, but walking this road is going to lead you to destruction with this graphic terminology. And, um, but there's a breath of fresh air. Um, what's the subheading for chapter 11? Lord's love for Israel. Thank you. And so, it, it, you know, it has this, like, you, you're going to be punished. You are, you're sinning. You're, you're living in, in such a, a horrendous, disgusting way that you are, I'm equating you to this prostitute. But I still love you. And chapter 11 of Hosea, verse 1, says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they went away, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. I think it's fair at this point to say, what in the world does this have to do? This is, this, this is talking about the nation of Israel. What does this have to do with Jesus, perfect Jesus as a baby, fleeing to Egypt by warning of an angel of the Lord. Um, it's, this, this, this entire book is speaking about the nation of Israel. Right, we're not taking messianic turns here. You know, we can see that in other prophecies. Um, but why does Matthew make this jump? Is this, is this a stretch? And so throughout the context of this, and as you continue to look and you keep going through the rest of the book, you see that this is, a, this is commentary on the nation of Israel. And not only on the nation of Israel, but this specifically is speaking of the exodus, the actual exodus of the nation of Israel being freed from uh, slavery by the Egyptians. And in order, this is a fair question that many people have asked. Is this too big of a jump? You know, if you, if you don't look at Hosea and you just read that little half-sentence quote of, of out of Egypt I call my son in the book of Matthew, you're like, oh, look, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. It says that Jesus is going to come from Egypt. You know, that's why he went. That's great. Well, let's keep moving on. Well, that's not what it, that doesn't really seem to, to be what it says here. And so I think to, uh, to, but yet this is the reason why the story is told in Matthew, is to fulfill this as a prophecy, he says. So how do we find solution to this? How do we find the answer? And the answer is found in something that we call a, a type. It's a literary feature, a type. Now, a type is defined as something that is used as a pattern or template, a foreshadowing of something greater, something that is seen yet veiled, an incomplete image that is perceived but not fully understood. Okay, once again, there's a literary feature called a, a type. So something, one thing can be a type of another. And defined means that a type is something that is used as a pattern or a template. It's a foreshadowing of something greater. It is something that is veiled, where you can see the outline, but you can't see the whole. It's an incomplete image of something that will later be revealed in greater detail. So what we do understand, track with me here, is that when we see the Old Testament, we see something that's called uh, progressive revelation, meaning that God did not reveal himself totally from, from day one. That when God made his promise to Abraham, and he said, I will make of you a great nation, and through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth, he didn't say much more than that. He didn't know when it was going to happen. He didn't know it was going to be the form of a, even of a, necessarily of an eternal Messiah, or even that it was specifically the third part of the Trinity that would come to earth. And he didn't, he didn't understand, but we see in Hebrews chapter 11 that 
Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness with what he did know. And so that whatever God has revealed to different people throughout the course of history has always been enough. It has always been enough. So at that specific point in history, it was enough. What we have is what we have now is God's total will revealed to the extent that he wants to reveal it to us. We believe that the Holy Scriptures are complete, that there isn't going to be a new uh, prophet, that there aren't going to be new books that we can uh, cut out and paste after Revelation, that what we have is all that God is going to give us. And we believe that Scripture teaches us that. But we also believe that in the Old Testament, they were acting on knowing that God was continuing to speak his further revelations. So when you look back at the Old Testament and you have some of these types as a literary form, you see that God was, was progressively revealing himself in greater and greater ways for the course of the Old Testament. And we find that that revelation finds its fulfillment, theme of Matthew, in the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament in the teaching of the apostles. So for example, if you, if you get the definition of, of a type... Let me give you a couple examples to kind of help us embrace, embrace this. We see that Adam is a type of, of Christ. We see that Adam is a type of Christ. If you want to flip to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we see this as a straight-up example of Paul, the New Testament author, acknowledging that there is something called a literary type and seeing it used in the first man who is Adam. Romans what? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. All right, Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, uh, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Jump down to verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one tre- trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience... The many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, a type is a foreshadowing. A type is a a veiled representation. A type is an incomplete image of something that is to come, and that's what Adam was. Adam was the son of God. Adam was made in the image of God. Jesus is the son of God, came in the form of man, who was made in the son of God. And just as sin was transferred through one man to all men, so is righteousness transferred through one man to all men. You get that? So, so Adam is incomplete, uh, an unfinished, sinful, broken type of a man who was to come. So he's not Jesus, he's not sinless, but he, he's a type as pertains to the literary feature. One more example is <clears throat> the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses is a type of Christ. As told by Tim Keller in Exodus chapter 14, listen to this story. God's chosen people follow a man who had done miracles, who spoke for God. He freed them from the bondage of slavery by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb and further saves them from their enemies in ways in which they could not save themselves, totally destroying the aggressor, leading them to the promised land. Does that sound like Christ? Does that sound like Christ? He, Moses is a type of Christ. 
All right, and so when you look at the Old Testament, you begin to see that these things are popping up all over the place. That there are theme after theme after theme after theme. That there is a coming, <clears throat> unveiled, <clears throat> more full version of all of these things that we're seeing in the Old Testament. And that's where hope lies. That hope does not lie in Adam because Adam has fallen. That hope does not lie in Moses. Even though he is a leader, hope does not lie in Moses because he was, fa- he was fallible. He sinned. So much so that he wasn't even able to enter the promised land himself. But he's a type. He's a representation. He's a veiled image of the complete one who was to come. And so, what we see is that there's another type that Matthew sees here in the Old Testament, and that is that the entire corporate nation of Israel is a type of Christ. That God sees the nation of Israel as his one and only son. D.A. Carson goes on to explain how in Exodus chapter 4, Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Sounds messianic, doesn't it? But we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. We see in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, God spoke and he said, This is my beloved son. We see that the children of Israel went into the wilderness where they faced uh, temptation, where they faced hunger, and they fell into sin. We see at the beginning of Matthew that Jesus, God's only son, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And what does he face? Temptation and deep hunger, but yet he does not sin. We see in Isaiah chapter 5 that the nation of Israel is referred to as the unproductive vine. But in John chapter 15, Jesus is referred to as the true vine, the unveiled vine, the complete vine. We see in other areas of the Old Testament that, that the nation of Israel and the children of Israel are referred to as God's son. And so what we see is that oftentimes when we think of the word fulfillment, we associate it with a, a, a tit-for-tat or a one-for-one for one fulfillment, that in order for something to be fulfilled, the Old Testament needs to specifically say that Jesus, as a child, was led by his father to Egypt to avoid being killed by Herod. And if it doesn't say that, then it's not fulfilled. And what Matthew is presenting to his readers is that there's a much broader fulfillment here that even previous authors of the Old Testament weren't necessarily privy to because God hadn't revealed it to them yet. But what's great about the Gospels is the Gospels is the the first telling of the story of Jesus and how the coming about of Jesus is a a further pulling back of the curtain to say, look, There is a greater fulfillment here than we ever realized. This story goes bigger than you ever thought. And we see that that hinted throughout the Gospels because we see people wanting Jesus to be the one that they assumed he would be, the military leader. And saying, Hosanna, Jesus is here as he walked into Jerusalem thinking that there was going to be a physical overthrow of the Roman Empire. But that didn't happen because the, the veil had not been been pulled off of their eyes yet so they only knew that image behind the veil it's important to recognize that Matthew is not making a stretch here that he's not just grasping for things to say "Eh, let's just kind of put these this Old Testament prophecy of Hosea uh, that is talking about the children of Israel when it says that my son shall come out out of Egypt and let's let's just connect it with this semi minuscule kind of obscure text, only telling of the story of Jesus going to Egypt as a child, that that, that, that is an, a, an intricate fulfillment of the type 
set before us that the nation of Israel is seen as God's chosen son. And at the coming of Jesus, he becomes God's chosen son. Because what that means is that the funnel of God, the funnel of God's promises that once was on a nation, now is shifted to Jesus, and therefore it shifts away from, from birthright to faith. That it is faith in the Son of God, not whether your mom and dad are Jewish anymore. That this, that this promise that was great and was awesome, but that followed a genetic line has now exploded to cover the whole world. That the dividing wall of hostility can be broken down. That the wall that divided the Gentiles and the Jews doesn't apply. And not only that, but the wall that divides God behind the curtain of the temple can be ripped open. Because now the, the walls have been broken down because it, it comes down to not your genetics, but your faith. So that this promise, this fulfillment is way bigger than even, even the prophets thought. It's way bigger than the priests ever thought. We see in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus had been resurrected and had made himself known to a few people, that there's a story about Jesus walking down the road to Emmaus. And what happens is that there's a couple guys walking down the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them, and walks with them, but they don't recognize him as who he is. And he says, what's going on? And they say, Have you, are you a foreigner? Are you the only man who hasn't been around to know that, there, that the man that we thought was the, was the one was just crucified? And he's been dead now for a couple days? And Jesus replies, and he says to them, Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, listen to that. To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then this, this mimics exactly what Matthew has done. He says, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So on this walk, beginning at the beginning, the Talmud, the books of Moses, Jesus says, here's my connection, here's my connection, here's my connection, here's my connection, through all the books of Moses. And then look at all of these connections. And he unveiled their eyes. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, since we have a hope and are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So what he's saying is that there are Pharisees here who only see the shadow of a coming Messiah and don't believe that he's already come, but he has. So they are still veiled. They're still waiting. They're still looking at that, Jesus, that, that Moses type. They're still looking at that, that Adam type saying that we know that there's this, this veiled, this unclear, unfulfilled image of a coming Messiah. We don't know who it is, but we, it's here. And Paul is saying that the veil has to, be, has, has to be taken off of your eyes by Jesus in order to see him. So understanding the idea, the literary feature of type, it begins to make much more sense that Matthew at the beginning here, and when he says, out of Egypt they call my son, is not simply this long shot or a shot in the dark of, of this old Hosea text, but he is showing that there is, a, there is a picture of how God has chosen and treated and provided for his child, the nation of Israel, and how that is going to be unveiled and fulfilled at a greater, more perfect level that can ever be imagined in his, his new child that we now see in the person and work of Jesus Christ in all of his perfection. So with that idea and that understanding of the literary feature of type, I want us to now look at the quote that we see in the second story of, of how Herod goes and kills the babies of Bethlehem. 
So Herod is jealous, verse 16, Matthew chapter 2. And in a rage, he says, kill all the babies that are under two years of age. Verse 17, it says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So uh, Matthew himself identifies the author as Jeremiah. And look at your little subtext and your little letters there and see where we can find that in the book of Jeremiah. Somebody say it out. 31 and 15. Great. So jump to Jeremiah. All right. Just like Hosea, we could just say, oh, look, they said that women would be weeping for their, for their lost children. And then let's move on. Well, it's more. There's a deeper understanding of how of, of these things of type and how Christ has revealed himself through the Old Testament. And Matthew is writing this entire gospel to tell the story of Jesus in the context of how he fulfills the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31:15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jump back to Jeremiah 21. Just like Hosea, just like Hosea, uh, the prophet is speaking because the people of Israel are not listening. And they're living in gross sin and gross debauchery and gross idolatry. Jeremiah 21, verses 1 through 10, is quite damning in the true sense of the word. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pashur, the son of of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. So the kings of Israel who were sinful went to Jeremiah and said, Hey, prophet of the Lord, why don't you uh, see how we can get out of this? Because there's a bad guy out there named Nebuchadnezzar who's bigger and stronger than us and he's looming in the distance. So how do we get out of this? That it may please our glorious Lord. Note sarcasm. Verse 3 then, here's Jeremiah's response. He said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls, and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched arm and a strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his servants, and the people in the city who survived the pestilence, sword and famine, I will give them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. And he shall strike them down by the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, or spare them, or have compassion." And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And he who stays in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you, you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. And I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. And, I will be, and it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire." whoa you know and it goes on it goes on and on because of their sin chapters 21 through 29 of jeremiah speak of the judgment that's going to befall the nation of israel chapter 21 verse 14 says i will judge you chapters 22 verses 8 and 9 says i'm doing this because of what you've brought upon yourself and your and your pagan idolatry Chapter 22, verses 24 through 26, it says, I will hurl you into another country. Chapter 25, 
Verse 11 says that you will be in Babylon for 70 years, which is a generation or more. But, just like Hosea, there's a fresh wind that kind of blows. In spite of their debauchery, in spite of their sin, in spite of their adultery, spiritually and physically. Isaiah chapter 30. speaks of the restoration of Israel and Judah. And when we get to uh, Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15, um, Abraham um, begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob was married to Rachel. And Jacob had the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. But that was 600 years ago. So when Jeremiah 31.15 says Rachel is weeping, it's a figurative statement. Saying, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, a lamentation, and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Speaking of the Babylonian captivity, it's speaking of how the children of Israel, the children of, of Rachel, whose husband is Jacob, who is renamed Israel, Okay, so the children of Israel, you see that? The children, the literal children of Israel um, are being led away to captivity, which was, was, was really the worst fate, because you would be re-indoctrinated under a new culture. You'd be taught to worship new gods. Your old temples would be sacked and burned. Um, you'd be taught in new literature and new language, and your children would be, their memories would be erased of whatever your heritage was. So it was, it was a great tragedy, and Rachel is figuratively weeping because her children are no more. They're leaving the promised land. Israel has been burned and gutted. The temple has been destroyed. D.A. Carson says that um, there was great and legitimate weeping for the children of Israel who were taken away to Babylonian captivity. And there was great and legitimate weeping of the mothers of the children of the slain children of Bethlehem. You know what else happened with the captivity? The Babylonian captivity is that the Davidic line, kingly line, was ended. Historically, there was always a physical king on the throne of Israel from the line of David, the prophesied line where the Messiah would come from. And when the children of Israel were, were taken out of Israel, the king was killed, and another king was never restored, ever, until Jesus. So there's a weeping that ends the Davidic line, and there's a weeping that begins the Davidic line. But both the text in Jeremiah chapter 31, 15 and the text in Matthew chapter 2 is actually, believe it or not, looking at the whole picture in, in the context of hope. Because look at, 31, look at Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping. And, and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward. For your work. Declares the Lord. And they shall come back. From the land of the enemy. Verse 17. There is hope. For your future. Declares the Lord. And your children will come back. To their own country. That though you are weeping now, legitimately, legitimately, there is still a greater hope. There's still a greater hope. And though the mothers in Bethlehem were, were legitimately weeping over this tragedy, both the tragedy of the Babylonian captivity and the tragedy of an evil man like Herod happened because of sin and of the fallen world. And that we, even now in 2016, will live a life that's going to involve mourning and weeping. But for the believer, there is a greater hope coming. 
there is a greater hope coming. That the weeping, the weeping will end. And the greater hope is the fact that even though these terrible things have happened at the hands of evil men, and though terrible things might happen in your life at the hands of evil men, that are, that are unspeakable, that are not even your fault, it still comes back to where is your hope placed? Where? And in this type literary feature, we see that the hope that we have is found in the fulfillment of the coming king that will follow in the line of David that will bring to us a king that was unlike any other. And in the Old Testament, they didn't exactly know what that looked like. All they had as a reference point was David because he was the best one out there. So a new David was coming. David is another type of Christ. A new David is coming. And what we see now with the unveiled eyes is that was the coming of Christ. And even though there is weeping and suffering and pain and legitimate despicable sin, that we still have a greater hope. The children of Israel had that and we have that. And the mothers of the slain now had a Messiah that wasn't there before. I really wanted to, but we um, don't have time to unpack um, the third fulfillment that we said that we see at the end of this third story, because I want to draw our attention to what Matthew is doing. And that what Matthew is doing as he begins this book is he's beginning to pull back the curtain on a much bigger, broader, more beautiful, more all-encompassing, more breathtaking understanding of what the Messiah really is. Uh, Two years ago, maybe it was four years ago, Lauren and I got the opportunity to go to Europe, and we... um, traveled around, and we, we went to this um, mountaintop location called Berchtesgarten in Austria. And you kind of wind up this road that goes up to this mountaintop kind of fortress left over from World War II. And it was a unfortunately cloudy day. Never been to the Alps before. It was the Alps, right? Okay, never, never been to the Alps before. And so... Um, I've been to Sugar Mountain. <laughs> you know? um, I have, I've kind of been to the Rockies, not, not really, definitely haven't hiked or you know, been. Um, so we take this bus and we go up there and we get up on this mountaintop thing and like it was beautiful. Um, but it was cloudy. And so the beauty was found kind of, you know, it seemed like you could see out really only couple hundred yards and you could see how the mountains dropped so you could see how high up you were and it was breathtaking but at the end at the end of our time up there the wind blew and like we saw the Alps for the first time and Lauren and I like just stopped and we're like and like then our jaw dropped so we were already there we had taken you see the connection, <laughs> okay? And when the, when, when, when the veil was lifted and the, and the clouds kind of spread and we saw the distance and we saw, like, the hills are alive with the sound of music, <laughs> you know? We saw it and we were like, whoa. A depth of understanding would, had just been revealed to us that we had not previously seen. We understood that it was awesome, we all understood that it was amazing and we were enjoying ourselves, but it wasn't until that happened that we saw the depth and the grandeur and the awe-inspiring wowness of that moment. And that's what Matthew is doing as he unpacks the Messiah. That the Messiah was not bound to a race. It wasn't bound to that 100 yards, but it could go as far as the eye could see. And it was awe-inspiring when it was close, but it just exploded the mind when it was revealed at a greater level. What Matthew is doing here is he's showing that weeping and suffering will be a part of this world. 
which is part of the, the fulfillment that we didn't get to talk about when it says that he will be a Nazarene, that, that there's going to be suffering, that Jesus was a man of sorrows. And that is, that, is, that, is, that is alluded to over and over and over in the Old Testament, that it's going to be rough from day one for the Messiah. And then how does it end? He's crucified. Now he defeats death and sin and then rises again. But I mean, it's, he lives a rough, rough, looked down upon, scorned, spit on, physically beat on, ridiculed life. But in spite of weeping and suffering, we have the resurrection. That in spite of your junk or your sin or the sin of other people that have beat you down, there's still this hope in this Messiah for those who are in the family of God. And that regardless of what happens in your life, if you're a Christ follower, you will not end in tears. That is a hope. That is, a, that is the, the, the breath of fresh air sitting on top of the Alps saying that this is good. So Matthew here is not just telling the story of, of a flight to Egypt and, the, and, and dreams that Joseph received by word of the Lord. These are all significant. There's a lot of other things that we can learn. We can learn things about Herod and his, his evil. We can learn about God's provision and his supernatural protection of the Christ child. But what Matthew is doing here is he is just pulling that veil back and saying, look, look, it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. It's getting prettier. It goes deeper. It goes wider for all of us. And this is just beginning. So be encouraged by the Messiah who's come. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that that you have revealed yourself to us. That the veil has been lifted for those of us that have called you king. And Father, please help us to continue to look and to see and to be awed by the hope that we have in spite of whatever is happening in life, good and bad, by the, by the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.